Um, so if you have your Bible, uh, please take a second to turn to Jan- Daniel chapter 2. Um, I too am going to turn there. And if you are wondering why we are in Daniel chapter 2, uh, we have been walking through Mark. We like to go passage by passage. Uh, after Rob has preached for a certain amount of weeks, whenever I come up here, we will always be in Daniel. It gives us a little break from uh, going through Mark. And uh, it also has a lot of application to where our culture is heading and also where our culture is. The theme that we, we have uh, identified in Daniel is that God is sovereign always. So if you are in a pit of, lion, or of lions, if you are threatened by an angry king, if you're thrown in a fiery furnace, or if a government puts out a decree calling for your death, God is still sovereign. I did this last time, but I want to give a little background and context of where we are in Daniel. Um, so God has chosen Israel as his people, and Israel is enslaved in Egypt. Uh, they are set free, and they're given the law through Moses. After years of exile in the desert due to their disobedience and breaking the law, Israel finally enters the promised land. There, Israel decides they want a king, and they end up getting Saul, even though God warned. When Saul goes mad through a series of events, Daniel or David becomes king. And after David, you get a long succession of kings that are mostly evil, mostly disobedient to God. Because of this, God allows Bab- Babylon to come and conquer Israel. Last chapter, we were seeing the first round of exiles being ripped out of Israel and taken to Babylon. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were among them. And now we are at a point where Daniel, who already had gone before the king, um, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel had um, been indoctrinated into Babylonian culture. They were given new names, um, a new education. They were in a new land but they drew a line when it came to breaking God's law. Daniel and his friends do not eat the food that the king tries to give to them. They eat food that does not break the law of God. They end up healthier, fatter, stronger, and this is not because the food was so much better, but because God is sovereign and God is powerful and God allowed them to be. The king is impressed and he elevates Daniel and his friends While he acknowledges God, he is yet to put his faith in God. And that's where we arrive in Daniel chapter 2. The main point today is that God's sovereignty is our hope. And I think three things that we will see throughout this chapter, the three main points are that a misplaced hope brings misplaced fear, that hope in God brings glory to God, and then finally, Christ is our hope. Last time we were in Daniel chapter 1, we kind of set up a tension. That tension was that today, we as Christians are no longer in the majority. The exile of people like Joseph, David, Daniel, and countless New Testament figures is no longer a story, but it's an approaching reality. In Daniel 2, we need to take the important step of identifying our response to exile. 
The tension we are exploring is not this external tension that we identified in Daniel chapter 1, but an internal tension that we face within ourselves. As we face a changing world where we no longer fit in and we experience persecution because of that, we will also be faced with an important question. Where does our hope lie? Is our hope in God? If not, we will see evidence in this by the way we respond. Um, So we're going to pray and then we'll dig in. Dear Lord, uh, we are so thankful to be here. God, we are thankful for your sovereignty. Lord, um, give me the ability to articulate what you want to be articulated. God, I pray that it is your word that comes through. God, help us to take an honest moment to reflect, to understand where we are putting our hope. And God, help us to acknowledge that as Christians, our hope is in Christ. Uh, Lord, we thank you for who you are. Amen. So Daniel chapter 2 is a lot of verses. And if you noticed, we didn't have anyone come up before me and read the scripture. We are going to um, kind of summarize 1 through 16, uh, 17 through 30, 46 through 49, and then we will read together 31 through 45, but that will be uh, when we get there. So I'm just going to provide a quick summary of 1 through 16, and I really encourage you um, after the service, when you go home at some point today, read through Daniel chapter 2. So we, we kind of enter, and King Nebuchadnezzar is experiencing dreams that were extremely troubling to him. These dreams clearly had a major impact on him. However, he wasn't able to remember them. And we see in Daniel 2, 3, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The king is troubled, but he doesn't even understand totally why he is troubled. The king calls in the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. By the way, Chaldean, um, high Babylonian official, really wise person. There's a couple ways it's used in Daniel. Most likely here within the context, just a really wise person within uh, Babylon. And he asks them to tell him the dream. They obviously cannot do this, and they acknowledge to the king, what you're asking us right now is insane. (laughs) Not only are you asking us to read your mind, but you're asking us to read your mind of something you don't even know. King Nebuchadnezzar decrees that all the wise men in Babylon, because they cannot do this, must be killed. Daniel and his friends are included in this, and they are alerted by Arioch. And Daniel calmly asks for an appointed time to tell the king his interpretation. So the first question that kind of popped out when we were reading this is, why is the king so troubled? Why does this dream bother the king so much? If you look historically, King Nebuchadnezzar is one of is, is the most powerful person in the entire world at this time. There's not a person or a country that threatens King Nebuchadnezzar. If he tells someone to do something for them for him, they do it. Ironically, it's the thing that he cannot see that is threatening him. Everything he sees is under him, but the thing that he cannot see is threatening him. I don't know if you have ever laid awake at night. I know sometimes something happens during the day and you think about it, you mull it over. Maybe you are having a bad dream and it wakes you up and you, and you lay awake and you can't fall asleep. That's one of the most frustrating things ever. And 
I've experienced this a few times. I don't anymore because I never get sleep. So right when I lay down, I'm out. But uh, you have two kids and that changes something. But I can um, relate to King Nebuchadnezzar here. It's frustrating. But even more than frustrating, it says that it was troubling his spirit. He was experiencing fear. In a way, Nebuchadnezzar was right to be experiencing fear. But he should be afraid of more than just this dream. He is in rebellion against a God, the God that allows the one true God, the God that allows his kingdom to rise and will dictate if his kingdom falls. He is troubled because what he puts his hope in himself, his hope is lesser than what he is afraid of, God. Because Nebuchadnezzar's hope was in himself, his power, his status, his comfort, his kingdom, and his hope has no answer for what he is afraid of, he responds with an incredible rashness. First, he asks for something that cannot be given. He goes to the wise man and he says, I have this dream. I'm not exactly sure what it is. I don't know what it means. Okay, ball's in your court, tell me. And they look at him and they're like, first off, if you look at what they actually say, they, they set it up really, really well. They're like, no great and wise, powerful king is ever, they're really trying not to be killed right on the spot. But he asks them something that they could never do. <clears throat> then we, he, we see him respond in an irrational way when they cannot do it. Kill all the wisest people in the land. All of you dead. Imagine if a CEO walked into their company, a very successful company, a company that's thriving, right? Babylon was thriving. A CEO walks into a thriving company, and there's one deal that they don't get done, and he says, you know what? You're all fired. It's irrational. The way the king responds is rash because his misplaced hope is crumbling. Nebuchadnezzar, however, is not alone in this. We, too, often find ourselves with misplaced hope and rash responses because of this. We've spent time dissecting Nebuchadnezzar's hope and how he responds and why he responded that way, but I think it's time that we look at ours. I was just kind of thinking through this. What are things that we often see people put their hope in today? This is not an exhaustive list by any means, but five things kind of came to mind. Family, status, job, health, and government. That's five, yeah, five. Um, I think we often put our hope in our family, our status, our job, our health, and our government. Quick story for you. Uh, this week, I was at school. I was teaching, and some uh, kid, he was being bad in my class. I called his mom, and while he was talking to his uh, mom on the phone, he took my keys and swiped my car keys off of it. And in, when I re my keys were then tossed into the corner of the room, and I found them two periods later. And when I realized my car keys were gone, I realized that, my hope in getting home, my hope in getting my daughter to her two doctor appointments that evening was gone because I did not take my car. I took my wife's car, which has both the car seats in it. Um, I started acting a little irrational. First, I sprinted out to the parking lot to see if my car was there. And uh, while someone was beeping the unlock button on it, my car was there. I ran back up to my room and I said, maybe I lost them. Even though my keys were stashed in the corner and the only thing that was taken off was the car key that you have to meticulously go around the ring with. I was looking all over my room. I had my seventh period class. They were supposed to take a quiz. I just said, forget the quiz. 
search my room, where are my keys? I was acting irrational. Now this analogy doesn't totally hold up because my hope in getting home was right. I needed my keys to get home. But you get the point. When our hope is threatened or our hope is taken away from us, we act irrationally. If we look back at that list of five things, we look at our family. Our family's a good thing. But how often, we may not explicitly say this, but do we implicitly think, God, I love you, but don't you dare touch my family. Don't touch my child. Don't, don't take my spouse away. I love you, but our status, are our actions dictated more by our culture than God's word? Are we willing to act in sinful ways to garner attention and gain status? Or do we get a greater satisfaction from our social media than our acceptance in Christ? If we look at our job, are we willing to compromise our beliefs to keep our job? Our health, do we panic when we are less than healthy, even though we know we have eternal life? And our government, do we panic when our candidate is not elected? Do we panic when our government makes laws that encroach on our beliefs and are our conversations dictated by government activity that we do not approve of? If, if we have a misplaced hope and these things are threatened, these are some possible responses we might see. I don't have the perfect answer on how to identify if your hope is wrapped up in these things. I think that's something that we as people need to prayerfully consider. However, if we look at these three things and we often respond in that way, we may be like Nebuchadnezzar. If our hope is not in God, we will act irrationally But when it is threatened. But thankfully, there's another response. We see Daniel's response is also dictated by his hope. When there is a decree put out that says all the wise men must be killed, Daniel's response is dictated by his hope, and his hope is in God. If we look at Daniel's response, we notice a couple things. First, it says that he was prudent and he had discretion. He slows down. He acts wisely. He doesn't panic. He remains calm. Ariot comes to Daniel and says, hey, you're going to die. And notice Daniel wasn't even in the room when all these wise men couldn't interpret his dream, but Daniel still lumped in with this, and he is told, you are going to die. The government has put out a decree that is going to kill Daniel and his friends, and he acts with prudence, discretion, and he remains calm. He stops and he gets all the information. In verse 15, we see that he declared to Arioch, the, captain, the king's captain, why is this decree so urgent? And then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Daniel figures out what, what's actually going on here. Daniel's actions assume that God will work rather than waiting for God to work. In 16, Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Daniel tells the king, I want to show you this interpretation before the interpretation was given to him. He knows that however God works, God is sovereign and God is good. Finally, Daniel goes, finally, Daniel goes to God. He goes back to his friends. He goes back to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he says, something bad is happening right now. 
Let's pray to God. Let's ask him for an answer. He goes to God because that is where his hope is. We fleshed this out in Daniel 1, so I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it, but I think God, I know God, is a very gracious and loving God. God understands that even if our hope is Him, at times we will experience fear. We may experience panic. And that is why God has gifted us with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Daniel, in this time of trial and need, goes to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. As Christians, we should operate with an understanding that God is sovereign. He may not always provide the interpretation to the dream, but if we are trusting God, whatever happens is ultimately for our benefit. In the face of death, Daniel remains calm. He does this because his hope is rooted in God, in a God that is sovereign over everything. Ultimately, this should elicit praise. We should give glory and honor to God. Our hope can be a reminder to believers, if our hope is in God, our hope can be a reminder to believers and a picture to non-believers. Our hope in God brings glory to God. That's point number two. I'm going to give you another summary of seven, uh, a summary here. It's of 17 through 30 and then 46 through 49. So Daniel ends up going to his friends and he lets them know the situation they are, they are in. He and his friends prayerfully seek an interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and God delivers. This causes Daniel to thank and praise God. He then goes to Arioch and he tells him to let the king know that he will provide an interpretation. Once he is in front of the king, before giving the interpretation, he makes a point to let Nebuchadnezzar know the interpretation was from God and God alone. In Daniel 27-28, through 28, we read, Daniel answered the king and said, No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the later days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. Daniel gives the glory to God. He makes a point to let the king know that, that God is the one who provided the interpretation. Again, in verse 30, he emphasizes it was revealed to him not because of his wisdom, but because God had a purpose for it. And then we see 46 through 49. This is after Daniel has interpreted, interpreted the dream, after Daniel has told the king, what the dream is. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is in awe. He falls on his face. He acknowledges God as the God of gods and the Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. We can notice three things that happen in these passages when we hope in God. The first thing we notice is that if our hope in God, we will truly praise Him. If our hope is in God, we will truly praise Him. Secondly, if our hope is in God, we will let others know of His work. And then finally, if our hope is in God, hopefully others too will praise Him. So let's flesh those out for a second. We go back to the first one. If our hope is in God, we will truly praise Him. Daniel and his friends first bring their concern to God, and when God answers their concern, they are filled with authentic, real praise. If you read verses 20 through 23, 
Daniel's words are beautiful, they are true, because God has just saved Daniel's life. We miss that when we hope in ourselves. Our problems might end up solved, but if they do end up solved, one of these four things will happen. We'll either have a misplaced trust in ourselves, we'll praise God with our words, but we're going to miss something in our spirit. We might acknowledge Him, but we won't experience that authentic praise because we weren't actually hoping in Him to solve our issues or our problems or to provide an answer. We may praise Him for something that we actually never trusted Him for, or we will altogether miss the opportunity to praise the one who deserves it. Daniel is able to offer true praise to God because his hope always rested in God. The second thing we notice is that if our hope is in God, we will let others know of his work. Daniel makes it a point to let the king know the interpretation that was provided to him was from God. The reason he is able to come to the king and let the king know is because God has a purpose for it. Because God sovereignly planned it. He uses this as an opportunity to let the most powerful person in the world at that time know of God's glory. If we too hope in God, when, God's work, when God works, we are given an amazing opportunity to share what God has done with others. If we begin trusting God with, instead of trusting in, our family, our status, our job, our health, our government, we will have a family that we are leading to Christ. Our satisfaction won't be in others, but others will see our satisfaction in Christ. With our job, our life will point to God, and our life will point to God and not what God has provided. With our health, our confidence, even when dying, will point to a hope in eternity. And with our government, our calmness, when we are persecuted, will be a witness and a reminder to others of God's steadfastness and God's control. If we are hoping in God, these five things will be a testament to other people about God's sovereignty. We do not need to panic. We do not need to fear. Finally, if our hope is in God, hopefully others too will praise Him. After Daniel interprets the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. He praises God. Now, if you are familiar with Daniel, we'll have some highs and some lows with Nebuchadnezzar. He kind of takes us on a roller coaster of if his faith is actually there. But I really do believe after reading Daniel that the last thing we hear of Nebuchadnezzar is he goes wild because he is hoping in himself again. But at the end of that seven years, he acknowledges God. He praises God. It's the last thing we hear of him. I think Nebuchadnezzar really put his hope in God. Daniel didn't need to attempt to make God look great. He prayed and he waited for God to do something great, but then he spoke of his greatness when he got the chance. It's not up to us to be these great heroes or do something great or go out and say, I'm going to do this. It's up to us to trust in God's greatness and share with others about his greatness. A hope in God brings glory to God, but it's vitally important to remember why we hope in God. We hope in God because Christ is our hope. That's point three. We're going to read 31 through 45. It's still 14 verses, so bear with me. Try to stay engaged. 
Um, I'll do my best to give some inflection and not sound like the Bible app guy. Um, but <clears throat> So we'll start in 31. You saw, O king, and behold... A, and by the way, this is Daniel's... Um, he tells the king what his dream is, and then he interprets it. So to give you some context there, he's telling King Nebuchadnezzar what the dream is, and then he is interpreting the dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image... This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, and its chest and arms of silver, and its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that no trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all of them, you are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they would not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation sure. I'm going to echo the sediment of one of my favorite pastors who also preached on Daniel 2, Alistair Begg, if you get a chance to listen to him. Also, he has a book that he wrote on Daniel. I highly recommend it, but I'm going to echo his sentiment here. The explanation of the dream, the interpretation of the dream, who is the head of gold, who is the chest and the arms and all that stuff is not the overly important thing that we need to get from this. Now, most scholars do agree that the head of gold is Babylon, that the chest and arms of fine silver is Persia, who comes and conquers Babylon. Um, you then have Alexander the Great in Greece. They come, they conquer Persia. By the way, if you guys want to talk about this some other time, I love history, so I would love to talk about this. Just, um, uh, the middle and the thighs 
is Greece, and then the feet of iron and clay, you have Rome, and obviously, if you know how Rome ruled, they kind of took the places they conquered and intermixed them, tried to indoctrinate them to be Rome, but still kind of let them have a peace, especially with Israel. Um, so you've got this mix of iron and clay. But again, the main point here is not who, who is the head of gold. The main point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is that these kingdoms will all fall. The head of gold will fall. The chest, the arms, the middle, the, the thighs, and the feet are all going to be crushed. But an everlasting kingdom will be set up. There's going to be a rock that is not cut by any human hand that is going to come and it's going to crush these kingdoms. It's a pretty condemning thought if your hope is in our government. Government's not bad. We read that today. But if your hope resides in our government, all kingdoms, all earthly kingdoms, and even more than that, anything you put your hope in that is not Christ will fall. The rock that crushes the statue will turn into a great mountain and it's going to fill the earth. That rock, that mountain that fills the earth is Christ. He sets up that kingdom. If our hope is in earthly kingdoms or anything other than Christ, we are so far off the mark. Christ is the stone. He sets up the eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. And notice this. While Nebuchadnezzar gives his wise men, his leaders in Babylon, an unattainable request. Tell me my dream. Tell me the dream that I don't even know. While he gives them an unattainable request, our king attains for us what we never could. Christ's life and death and resurrection is the reason our hope is rooted in him. We have all fallen short. We have all sinned. We have all broken God's law. We have all put our hope in things that are not Christ. But Christ has attained the justification we need to stand in front of God and be part of this eternal kingdom. When our earthly kingdoms have fallen, when our family is gone, when our status is destroyed, when our jobs no longer matter, and when we ourselves have passed away, which will happen, whether you're a Christian or not, if you are sitting in this room, all of this will happen. The only thing that matters is was your hope and your faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, help us to take time to reflect where our hope is. God, you are a patient and understanding God. God, we too often allow our hope to wander, but you gently bring us back. God, allow us to be people who now repent of a hope that is not in you, because there will be a time when the gently bringing us back ends. We will face judgment, and if our hope is not in you, we will not be part of the eternal kingdom that you have set up. God, forgive us for times that we have not put our hope in you, and God, strengthen us and help us to put our hope in you.